well, you know what? I didn't, I didn't want to go to med school to, to get all, nearly $500,000 in debt. That's because we have not found a way to regulate tuition prices in this country. Now more than ever, we understand the public service that medical professionals provide to communities. Join Dr. Tyler King and PRN today as we dissect public service loan forgiveness, PSLF. Follow Dr. Tyler King, handle at DTylerKingDO on Twitter for more. From PRN, this is Alana Castro-Gilliard. Hey, everybody. My name's Tyler King. I'm a PGY1 in family medicine in Laredo, Texas, affiliated with the University of Incarnate Ward School of Osteopathic Medicine. What is your experience on this topic? Besides personally going through it in the last in the last year. Um, so, you know, I just graduated medical school in May of 2020. I consolidated the day after graduation. I filed my taxes earlier in the year. I went through the consolidation process. I got enrolled in pay-as-you-earn. Uh, and then, you know, so I got the, and I've, I've submitted my first employer certification form and Fed, Fed Loans has approved it. And then, so that's my just personal experience. And then from a professional standpoint, I did uh, participate in the uh, AACOM Osteopathic Health Policy Internship in Washington, D.C. earlier this year, um, right before COVID and during COVID. Uh, I, the last two weeks were virtual and I left D.C. <laughs> Uh, a, a couple weeks early, um, but uh, one of my my main uh, policy proposals that I wanted to work on was student loans, and so I uh, researched and worked with uh, the government relations department of AACOM in DC, in government relations office in DC on, on that. The first week or two I was on on the job, uh, the Congressional Budget Office had released a um, a report on the costliness of income-driven repayment plans at large, not necessarily touching public service loan forgiveness, um, but essentially they're extremely costly. You're paying only 10% of your discretionary income for t- uh, 20 to 25 years. And of course, as inflation goes up, the dollar that you're, you know, that you borrowed today is much less later and ends up costing the federal government quite a lot um, compared to previous, the standard repayment plan, for example, is a 10-year plan where you basically just take uh, your total loans and divide by 10, divided by 12 months a year, and that's your, that's your payment. It's just like that. Whereas the income-driven payment plan, it doesn't matter how many student loans you have. You can have a million dollars in student loans, or you can have $500,000 in student loans. Um, your payment's going to be the same because it's based off your income, not about how much how many loans you have. Um, so anyway, I spent a good chunk of time uh, researching student loans and uh, also, uh, honestly, podcasts like studentloanplanner.com has a great podcast. Uh, the White Coat Investor is also a good podcast. They don't exclusively focus on student loans. Um, and some of the advice from them is a little bit more old school, a little bit more pay down your debt, you know, live like a resident, you know, do it, do it the right way, just pay it all off. Um, and that's fine. But um, I, I think Student Loan Planner, for example, has a much more nuanced uh, vision of how to tackle student loans that kind of addresses the lifestyle you want to live. And also, um, you know, the idea that if, if you're making, if your salary is 200,000, your loans are five, 600,000, there's no sense in paying it all off when you could go for forgiveness. That's another thing is if your debt to income ratio is higher than 1.5 or higher than two, like the example I just gave, you're actually better. Even if you're in private practice, you're you're better off if you have that ratio going for the 20-year forgiveness through pay as you earn than paying it off 
financially. Now, if you just don't like the idea of having that debt for 20 years, I get it. But um, even with the tax bond, if that stays, which it probably won't, but even if it did, um, the 20 years is, uh, is, is a better mathematical financial decision. But yeah, that's, that's all, that's all my personal experience so far um, that gives me any sort of uh, validity in talking about it. But I guess the biggest thing is that I've just went through it. Who and how do you qualify for PSLF? Yeah. So in order to qualify for public service loan forgiveness, first of all, you need the right loans, which are federal direct loans. If it doesn't say direct on your, on your, on your loans, then it probably doesn't count. Um, so it needs to have that word direct. Uh, and so you got to have those types of loans. You also have to be working for a qualifying employer. That's usually a government agency or a 501c3 or a university. And you have to make 120 qualifying payments. All, all three of those things have to be happening at the same time. You have to be, you have to have the loans, you have to be working for the right place, and then you have to be making the payments and be in repayment. So, and you just do that for 120 months. It does not have to be 10 consecutive months. So if you had a break or, you know, you want you, you need to take a few months off between jobs or you just worked another job, it's okay. Um, the 120 months can happen over an 11, 12, 15 year period, you know? Um, so that's kind of the three big things you need and need them all to be happening at the same time. And, and just be submitting your, this is not required, submit your employer certification form. I would recommend at least once a year so that you can be monitoring fed loans and the payments uh, to make sure that you have the right number of payments. Keep your records, compare them to what FedLoan says you have as number of payments, and always be ready to call them and, and argue to make sure that they have not miscalculated your payments. Because I've seen it on the Facebook groups, the physician-eligible PSLF Facebook groups. A lot of times they will miscalculate your loans and you have to call and be on the phone for an hour or two and make sure they get it right. But um, you know, I've seen lots of success stories. Can you give us a little bit of information on the history of PSLF when it started, who the first group was to get it? Yeah, actually, um, PSLF was founded back in 2007 under the College Cost Reduction Access Act. Um, uh, ironically, college has not been reduced in price over these uh, 13 years since then. Um, but, but essentially, it established PSLF. And in the early beginnings, nobody knew what PSLF was. And um, it, it wasn't until 2010, 2011 that um, medical schools were actually using the correct loans uh, to be eligible for PSLF. You have to have a federal direct um, student loan to be eligible for PSLF. Um, so you, you'll, you'll see, we'll talk about this later, or perhaps... But um, you'll see that there was a 99% rejection rate in 2018. That was the very first year that anyone could apply because it's a 10-year program. And most people just simply didn't fill out their forms right. Um, I hope at the end of this podcast that one of the biggest things that people can take away is that if you're a current borrower, you should feel good about public service loan forgiveness being uh, being there for you, uh, because it's in your promissory note that you made uh, with the federal government, which is in fact a contract. Um, so, you know, if if you aren't in medical school yet and you haven't taken out student loans, then I, you know, I don't think, I don't feel as comfortable guaranteeing in quotes uh, that it'll be there. But um, yeah, so essentially you have to have, um, there's a few things you have to have to get public service loan forgiveness. You have to have the right loans, which are federal direct 
loans. And you have to be on an income-driven or payment plan, um, IDR for short. And those are revised pay-as-you-earn, repay, pay-as-you-earn, pay, and pay, and then IBR, which is income-based repayment. It's alphabet soup. Um, but you have to be on one of those plans. And you have to be working for a qualifying employer, which is usually a government agency or a 501c3 or a university or other nonprofit. What exactly is the benefit of PSLF to the federal government? And why would they fund this to begin with? So in theory, um, it's supposed to encourage people to work in public service in areas that might need it more. Now, I'm here not to defend PSLF as a policy. I'm here to promote PSLF as an option for medical students, residents, young physicians in practice to consider it and not blow it off as if it's not something they could do. So I personally don't think PSLF is doing what the federal government wanted to do in in a certain sense because, yeah, I'm in Laredo, Texas, Webb County, one of the poorest counties in Texas right now, but that I don't have to be here to qualify for PSLF. You have to be working for an employer, a federally qualified health center. Those exist in New York City, Washington, D.C., San San Antonio. Um, Those exist everywhere, and those qualify for PSLF. So, and nonprofit hospitals exist all over the country. Now you have to actually be being paid by that nonprofit hospital. If you work inside of a nonprofit hospital, but you're being paid by a third party that's for profit, then it doesn't count. Um, so that's for me, that's the problem with PSLF as a policy is that it doesn't guarantee that people are going to be working in the most needed areas because some not for profit hospitals don't really deserve that status, but they've somehow been able to get it. Um, so I definitely don't think it's a perfect policy. I don't think it's doing everything it's, um, you know, saying it, it is intended to do. And it probably wasn't intended for physicians making, you know, hundred thousand, uh, three, $400,000 a year, but sometimes that's who it's benefiting. So I'm not here to say it's the best way to attack uh, student loans. I'm just here to say, if you're a current borrower, you should consider it um, unless you're in a specialty that has very little chance of you, Uh, achieving it. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Are there specific specialties that are less likely to qualify and why would that be? Yeah. So two big ones are emergency medicine and anesthesia. Now, unless you're going to go into academic medicine and teach for a residency program or a university um, or medical school at large, it's going to be harder because a lot of, you know, the emergency medicine, anesthesia, maybe even radiology and some of the more advanced surgeries, you're a lot, it's just private practice is a lot of times the way to go, or you're being paid by a third party. You're not being paid by the hospital directly. And in some states, it's actually illegal for hospitals to contract physicians directly. Uh, actually, in Texas, that's my understanding, is that you, a, hospitals cannot directly contract with physicians. So it's, it's interesting. Um, but the point is, uh, there are some specialties that are less likely. And it's not just because they may not have P- PSLF eligible jobs. It's also because they may just be making way too much money to even think about it. And if there's, you know, debt to income ratio is one to one, you know, if they're $300,000 in debt, but making $300,000 uh, income per year, then you shouldn't go for PSLF. You should probably just re- refinance and pay it off. Um, so you should go, go through a uh, a, com- a bank or refinancing institution, SoFi, et cetera, and just look for the best refinancing rates and pay it off. So if you have a great salary and your student loans are average, then yeah, you should you, you don't need to go for PSLF. But I'm hoping that P- 
people will understand when they start residency, they should at least set themselves up for success in PSLF. And then they have the option at the end of residency to decide PSLF or not. So you're talking about third parties paying for your salary. How exactly do you find out if you're getting paid by a third party or under one of these federally health qualified centers, et cetera? Yeah. So like, let's say you're, you know, applying for residency. So one thing to know is I'd say like 80 to 90% of residencies actually count as PSLF credit. So I, I, right now my employer is University of Incarnate Ward School of Osteopathic Medicine. That's a PSLF eligible employer. So um, you, you kind of have to ask uh, when let's say when you're on a residency interview trail, you can ask the residency coordinator. Basically you're asking who pays my salary? Where does my check come from? And then you can look it up and online and see whether or not it's a 501c3. Um, but if it's a university or not, uh, you know, if anything 501c3, it, it'll count. Now, if you go to a residency program that is funded by HCA or one of the big um, kind of university or hospital systems, for-profit hospital systems, and they're the ones that actually pay your paycheck, then it won't count. But for me, for example, I'm in Laredo Medical Center. Uh, that is with community health systems for profit, but they don't. So that sounds bad, but actually they don't pay me. So I'm okay. University Incarnate Ward pays me. So all that matters is who's paying you. And then you just need to look up, you know, okay, who's paying me? Is this a, is this a university? Is this a nonprofit? Is this a government agency? Then it counts. But you also need to be in your income driven repayment plan and not be in the grace period. So medical students and your fourth year, make sure you are not in the grace period. Because any payments made in the grace period don't count. So let's go back to that uh, part about being a medical student. What do you need to do now? And you kind of started hitting on this as a medical student to qualify yes. for PSLF. So in your fourth year, so all of you that are right now, it's January 2021. Uh, for those of you, if anyone's listening to this later, if you're in your fourth year of medical school in the spring, be plant, look at April 15th, that's tax day. You want to make sure you file your taxes for the previous year. So here we are right now. If you're a fourth year med student, you want to file your taxes for 2020 by this coming April 15th, 2021. Even if you made no money, especially if you made no money, you want to file your taxes. Um, and you want to do that so that when you graduate and consolidate your federal student loans into one loan, because basically every semester you get a new federal loan, right? At the end of med school, you want to combine those, let's say, eight loans into one. And it's not just for fun to have one loan instead of eight. It's actually to eliminate the grace period. And then, and then you get on an income-driven repayment plan sooner. Because usually you mm -hmm. think of a six-month grace period after graduation as a good thing. Like, oh, look, I'm not going to have to pay my student loans for six months. No. Because most med students, the year before, made no money. So you want to file your taxes, show you made no money the year before, consolidate your federal student loans the day after you graduate. Unfortunately, you can't do it any sooner than that. Uh, and then basically you you pick which income-driven repayment plan is right for you. And that, that, that is a little bit of a complicated choice. I ended up going with pay-as-you-earn, P-A-Y-E. Happy to explain why I chose that. And then basically, let's say your first day on the job is July 1st. Ideally, your your first payment would be in July of intern year. For me, I I consolidated May 18th, and I, my first payment still wasn't until August 11th. So I did miss out on the July 
uh, credit, but you know, that's one extra month, not a big deal. Okay. So why don't you talk a little bit about the, the pay as you earn, why you chose that? Okay. And I can talk about, I can talk about others too, like the other two options, but for most people, it's going to be between pay and repay. Um, so pay as you earn, it's a 20 year forgiveness program. So a lot of people don't realize that these income driven repayment plans in and of themselves are um, forgiveness plans. They're just 20 years or 25 years for repay. And it's taxable forgiveness at the end of that 20 to 25 years. PSLF is a 10 year or 120 payment program and it's tax free forgiveness, meaning you the $300,000 that you get forgiven, you don't have to pay taxes on that at the highest income bracket. So that's um, an issue. Um, However, I will point out that the taxable forgiveness on pay and repay, those have not occurred yet. Um, pay, for example, the one I'm on, didn't come into existence until 2012, which means the first person that will get forgiveness for that will be in 2032. And I predict, uh, based off information uh, that I've gathered from experts like Travis Hornsby at Student Loan Planner, um, that that will probably be changed by then because think of how many Americans are saving for a tax bomb on $200,000 in student debt. So that's, let's say you make a, a decent salary. Let's say it's 30% of that. That's $60,000 you're expected to pay right then and there. So over these 20 years, you're supposed to be saving about $60,000 for that tax bomb. Um, but you know, most people aren't doing that. Remember, we're not just talking about medical students and doctors here. We're talking about all different types of professions. We're talking about the person who got $100,000 loans for his master's in philosophy. No offense to philosophy, but the income you're making, then you may not have uh, enough saved by then uh, to pay on that tax bomb. So the point is, um, technically, pay as you earn and repay are, are taxable forgiveness 20 and 25 year plans. I chose pay as you earn also because, not just because it's shorter, uh, but because I'm allowed to do married filing separately on my taxes uh, when that becomes advantageous. Right now, it's not. But uh, as I in- increase income, especially uh, with j- when jumping from resident to attending income, uh, and especially in Texas, which is a community property state, there are advantages to doing married filing separate. And basically, that allows me to pay 10% of my uh, discretionary income uh, just of my income and not my and not including any of my wife's income, for example. And because this is getting a little complicated, but because Texas is a community property state, I can actually split up uh, our income 50-50. So I, I'm projected to make three or four times more than my wife when I'm in attending. Uh, but if I do married filing separately in the state of Texas, state of California, I believe New Mexico, Arizona, uh, all the West Coast states and Wisconsin randomly, um, you can do Mary filing separately and split the income 50-50. So you end up paying 10% of half of your total household income, which ends up being just 5% basically. So there's a lot of crazy loopholes. Um, but anywho, the point is I chose pay journey because I'd like to separate spousal income, 20 years repay. There's an advantage to that. It's 25 years, but you do get some interest subsidies. So if you're single and you're like, ah, I don't think I'm probably going to end up doing PSLF, repay is a, a decent option. Um, but I would suggest you get a student loan consult with someone like a uh, student loan planner um, uh, before making that decision. You can technically change plans at, at some point, but they, the federal government could change the laws where you're not allowed to change plans. 
And that's why I went with pay because I knew I would want to end up on pay. But it's a little complicated for someone just hearing all this at once. So, do, you know, I would recommend people doing uh, some extra research so on it. Just to tease apart some of the things you talked about. Um, so it sounds mm-hmm. like with filing with a spouse versus filing by yourself, there's not really any blanket advice on whether you should or shouldn't do it. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, because yes, exactly. That's why a consult is usually a good idea because obviously if, if you do marry filing separate, you're going to pay higher taxes um, on, on part of it. So you have to run the numbers. You basically always have to, if you're not comfortable running your own numbers, you know, getting an accountant or getting a, a student loan expert to break it down uh, and see which option is best for you. Like I know, for example, this coming year, I'm going to mar- do, I'm going to do Mary filing jointly because I'm eligible for a child tax credit because I have a daughter eligible for or an income tax credit because my income is going to be so low this year compared to next year because I'm only making half of a resident income this year from July to December. So there's a lot of reasons why I'm, I don't, I know I'm just going to do Mary filing jointly. And then next year I might start the conversation about Mary filing separate, but it's, yeah, it's very complicated. If you're very unsure, um, then yeah, you would want to get a professional to kind of help you decide. Okay. And another word that we've kind of thrown around is refinancing. What is the difference between refinancing Mm -hmm. and consolidating your loans? Yes. So refinancing is what you do with the private institution. Uh, so, and you, and you can privately refinance federal student loans and private student loans. But right now I would not advise anybody to refinance their federal student loans until we know what's going on with federal student loan policy. Right now payments are $0, 0% interest. That's set to expire in February, but still I wouldn't mess with that until you had a better idea about what's going on. But anyone with private student loans, refinance as many times as you can to get better uh, rates. Think about refinancing uh, with student loans. It doesn't affect your credit score like uh, maybe a car or a house would do. Basically, refinancing is just saying, hey, I have better credit than I did when I first got this loan. Um, Would anybody like to take my debt and let me have a lower interest rate? And um, so that's something you can do with either federal or private. But right now, I wouldn't do that with federal. Now, consolidation, that is just, and that's only for, these are only for federal student loans. Consolidation is taking your 10 student loans for medical school from, you know, or eight from each semester um, and getting those into one uh, student loan with the same rate. Because you might, if you go into your student loan servicer, you'll see all your loans and you'll see one is my 6.4%, one 6.7%, one is 7%, and one is 7%. And then Consolidating basically puts all eight of them into one loan and with one interest rate. And the major benefit to that in most medical students' case is eliminating the grace period, getting started on an income-driven or payment plan earlier, giving yourself five to six months more of PSLF credit during residency. Um, Would you rather pay 10% of your discretionary income on your residency income, or would you rather pay 10% of your attending salary? I think we'd all agree you'd rather pay 10% of your residency. And actually, this is 10% of zero, which is zero. The first year of residency for most people, it's $0 per month. And those payments count if you're working at one of the 90% of residencies that count towards PSLF. It sounds like what you're saying about PSLF overall is that we should get started on it now. But why is it important? What, like, Why can't I make this decision after I've finished residency. 
Yeah. So a lot of residents have made this critical mistake and I think less are doing it because it's kind of the words getting out. Um, but basically, you know, residencies are at, let's say three to seven years long and those three to seven years, you could be getting PSLF credit and you would hate to end a three, five, seven year residency program and then start a new job at a PSLF eligible job, which a lot of physician jobs are PSLF eligible. You would hate to be starting residency and then start the clock of 10 years then, paying 10% of 300000 or 10% of 250000 as opposed to 10% of zero, 10% of 25000 10% of 50000 Because your first year of residency, you're going to pay $0 a month because unless you made money in medical school, pay 10% of zero the year before. And then the second year of residency, you're going to pay 10% of half a year of residency, July to um uh, July to December, because you're verifying your income with your income taxes that you file in April of the next year. So then your second year residency, you're only paying 10% of half a year's income. And then finally, in your third year residency, you're paying 10% of a full year of income. So you'd rather be paying 10% those smaller payments that count towards PSLF and just get that 10-year clock started earlier. Um, so especially if you're in a longer residency program. Now, if you're doing subspecialty or surgery um, or neurosurgery, you know, those the ones that last longer, I get it. You're likely to make a lot more money and likely to not necessarily need it. But getting on repay is a good strategy if you're one of those people because you actually get an interest subsidy during that time. There's a 50% interest subsidy on repay. So if you're someone who's very unlikely to, you know, go for PSLF, getting, you know, on board in the program early doesn't hurt you either. Um, it's still getting you on a nice income driven plan that has interest subsidies, which basically cuts your interest rate in half from like seven to 3.5%. So, so that's some, someone like that would choose repay. But for me, I don't care about the interest rate. Interest rate could be 30% for all I care. I'm going for forgiveness. Um, and, and PSLF is tax-free forgiveness. So I am totally comfortable with my student loan balance going up uh, even though right now it's not because of the uh, CARES Act COVID stuff. But me seeing my student loan balance going up is actually a good sign because there are ways to basically decrease the amount of student loans you're paying and increase your forgiveness 10 years down the road. One of those being contributing to your a 401k. You know, it's hard for residents to do, but the more you contribute to a 401k or a 403b uh, you know, tax deferred retirement account, that actually lowers your student loan payment the next year because it decreases your AGI, your annual gross income. And that's how your student loan payments calculated. So there's a lot to think about, but that's one example. Okay. So let's say I'm a fourth year. I've now consolidated my loans. I applied for my taxes, like you said. I've done all the things to set myself up for PSLF. Is there anything that I'm missing out on by doing this? Like, Is there a reason why I shouldn't get set up to potentially qualify for PSLF? No, and the only difference in that is that after the six-month grace period, you'd probably end up enrolling in repay anyway. Most That's what most residents end up joining. Um, so it's like you're just cutting, you're just doing it six months earlier. And the reason why the six, for me, it was important to do it six months earlier and just do it right away, consolidate all the extra work is because 10 years from now, if I'm in a job that I'm not loving and I'm ready to jump out of the nonprofit world or I'm wanting to go into private practice, that's six less months I have to do that and six less months that I have to pay 10% of my attending salary up. So sure, like 
you know, six extra months may not be a big deal to some people. If you just want to wait until your grace period's done. Um, the one thing I will say is just don't go into forbearance, get in an income driven plan. And, uh, another thing about it, uh, here's one reason, another reason to do it immediately is because you can prove your $0 income. But if you wait until November, December of intern year, they might require you to show a pay stub of what you're making. And then you'd have to be paying 10% of your, um, monthly residency salary. So, and I'm not hundred percent on that. They may allow you to do your still, they may still allow you to show your uh, income taxes. Um, I just don't know if by de December of that next year, if they would still accept the previous year's tax income, but they, they might. So that may not be valid, but for me, it was just worth it to uh, be able to get in. And by the way, getting enrolled in PSLF, it's not automatic. You have to later on submit what's called an employer certification form. And that's, and that's where the Department of Education basically says, yes, you are at a qualifying employer and you are in a qualifying plan. And we just want to let you know you're on track for PSLF uh, if, you, uh, if you continue on this path. And just as a fun fact, you can check out the PSLF data reports at studentaid.gov. Um, and you can see their most recent report was September of 2020. And you can see 1.3 million borrowers are currently sitting with approved employer certification forms by the Department of Education, uh, totaling over $200 billion in student loans. So if those 1.3 million people continue on the path that they're currently on with their current employer, they're set to have their student loans forgiven at about an average of $86,000 per borrower. Um, and I'm in a Facebook group with uh, about 7,000 PSLF eligible physicians. And every week I'm seeing posts uh, about PSLF success stories. Um, so it's happening. Don't let those 99% rejection numbers uh, scare you away. Most people that rejected did, were not even in the program for the full 10 years. Many of them had missing information, missing signatures, um, or maybe they didn't have the right types of loans. So don't let those clickbait stories scare you. Always have a backup plan. You should be saving a PSLF side fund in case anything catastrophic happens. But even the most extreme proposals, let's say the most fiscally conservative Republican in Congress, even those proposals do not cancel PSLF for current borrowers like most people listening to this podcast. So this is a little bit difficult to answer. But do you anticipate any changes with the new presidential administration coming in? I know you just said even the most conservative groups are uh, not trying to get rid of the people that would qualify now. But Yeah. Um, so obviously a lot depends on what happens in two days in Georgia um, in, in, the Senate run, in the Senate runoff elections. So, you know, if the Democrats were to win and take, take control of the Senate, uh, I think you could see some mass forgiveness at you know, ten to fifty thousand per borrower, perhaps. Uh, although, interestingly, that can hurt people based off current IRS law. Uh, for example, if I were to get ten or fifty thousand dollars of my student loans forgiven right now, <clears throat> that would actually hurt me. Well, I don't make much income, so that's fine. But I would have to pay taxes on that forgiveness uh, unless they change uh, that IRS code about. Uh, student loan forgiveness, which I think they might. Um, so in a way that would hurt me right now. Um, and that's only, I, I have $457,000 in student loans. 
uh, I don't want to be cruel, but that in a way, $10,000 is a drop in the bucket for me. Um, and that's why I'm going for PSLF because PSLF takes over the, it forgives everything that's remaining on your balance. Uh, so even if I only pay $100,000 over the next 10 years towards my loans, the remaining 350, 400,000 will be forgiven tax free. Um, and it'll probably be even more, it'll probably grow. My balance will probably be like five or 600,000 in 10 years from now. Um, and that will be forgiven. Uh, otherwise, if, you know, I have no idea, uh, Biden's current plan uh, in his campaign, which is always campaign proposals are just, that's rarely what actually gets into law. But um, his proposal was basically everyone on the same income driven repayment plan, 5% for 20 years and it's tax-free forgiveness. That's an extremely forgivable plan. Um, so, you know, I doubt that would ever pass. Even some Democrats might not go for that. Um, but, and then if Republicans control the Senate, I don't see really anything happening on student loans for two years. Uh, I think the status quo will pretty much be the same. In theory, there's one compromise coming down the road and that's referring to the taxable forgiveness on pay as you earn and repay those 20, 25 year plans. There could be a negotiation where they say, Republicans say, okay, we'll give you, we'll get rid of the tax bomb on, on the forgiveness for those two plans if you Democrats agree to put a cap on the amount of federal student loans people can borrow. And you know, you know, the cap on federal student loans is problematic in the sense that it gives higher education institutions no incentive to lower tuition. And it gives them all the incentive to raise it because they know they have an unlimited borrower in the federal government. Um, but at the same time, grad plus loans are important for a lot of low income and just any income, but especially low income people without uh, access to credit. Uh, it hurts people of color more um, if that were to go away. So it's it's a real complicated situation. That could be a potential compromise down the road on student loans, um, but we'll see. Right. So um, one last thing. I just wanted to read to our listeners uh, a bit of one of your recent uh, med Twitter comments um, that I thought was something that a lot of people could relate to. Um, you said, we no longer need to listen to that angry uncle telling us we want to pay all of our student loans back like he did when current tuition prices are 30 times higher than inflation since the 1970s. We have to play this game smarter, not harder. So I don't know if you have any final comments on that, but I feel like that's a good wrap up to a lot of what you're saying is to be smarter about this, not work harder. Yeah, it's not our fault that the higher education system has screwed us over. Let's just call it what it is. And, you know, uh, when that angry uncle example I'm giving, I'm basically saying that's the that's the mentality a lot of people have. The old school pay off your debt. Hey, you did this. You wanted this school and do it. Well, you know what? I didn't I didn't want to go to med school to, to get all, nearly five hundred thousand dollars in debt. That's because we have not found a way to regulate tuition prices in this country. And it's it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So. Um, that uncle that went to school in the seventies, uh, they paid one thirtieth of what we're paying when adjusted for inflation. So they can just walk away from that or, or I can walk away. That's fine. But I'm not going to let anybody make me feel bad for going for PSLF. Um, now there's going to be lots of people out there who just still aren't believers in PSLF and that's fine. Like I said at the beginning, I'm not here to say PSLF is the best policy to get 
um, physicians and just remember PSLF is not just for physicians. It's for all uh, professions um, who work in any type of public service setting. Um, you know, I'm not here to say PSLF is the best policy to get physicians into rural areas or to get physicians into, into low income areas. It doesn't always work out that way. I'm just here to advocate for medical students and residents to go for it if it makes sense for them and then not be deterred by clickbaity like headlines about the 99% rejection rate. And I just, I hope you'll do your own research and see um, that it's, it's working. And each year over the next five years, you'll start to see more and more people uh, be getting forgiveness. And frankly, when that happens, Congress will start talking about it more and probably start talking about ways to curb the cost of the program because it is going to be extremely costly by the mid 2020s or, you know, close to 2030. So, for, but for current borrowers, I feel really confident that um, it was promised to you in your promissory note when, when you sign for student loans. That's a, that's a contract with the government. I feel really confident for current borrowers that PSLF will be around in its current form for you. Now, for future borrowers, I, I can't say that it will be just as forgiving uh, as, as the current version of it. Well, I certainly thank you for your honesty throughout this podcast and all of the education you've provided us. I think it's going to be very helpful to the students listening. Oh, thank you. It was an honor. Uh, anytime. This episode was hosted and produced by Alana Castro-Gilliard and edited by Peter Samuel. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN. PRN.